Good evening, everybody. For some of you, this retreat may be going quickly. For others of you, it may feel like you're walking uphill in a swamp. But nonetheless, um, you're all here, and both Michelle and I have been really impressed with the quality and earnestness of the work that you're doing. You're really taking care of one another. You're observing silence. You've really created a space uh, here together that supports growth, healing, learning. So I want to honor that. This is not... um, easy work all the time. And not many people take this on. Uh, You are very special. Yes, these practices are getting more popular, but the percentage of people who actually jump into the very deep end of the pool on a retreat like this is very small. So I continue to be um, delighted and thrilled to be in your presence. So this from uh, Nelson Mandela. No one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or their background or their religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can learn, they they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. You know, in in Nelson Mandela's long struggle against apartheid, a lifetime of struggle. Um, you know, one another thing that he said was a a good um, head and a good heart are always a formidable combination. And when you think about the transformation that he went through in all those years and on Robben Island and incarcerated in other prisons, um, there is a tremendous transformation of the heart. He never lost any of the fire to resist and extinguish apartheid. He never lost any of that. But the cultivation of his heart over time, absolutely stunning. The quality of love and forgiveness that he could show while, you know, utilizing every ounce of his strength in resistance and action is just extraordinary. He got it. He understood that relying on rage only but goes so far that there's got to be that combination of the fullness of the heart. Our friend Ruth King, who just published the book this year, Mindful of Race, um, she's tried that journey, beginning with Years of rage against the system, against social injustices, racism. 
And what she discovered along the way is that effectiveness is really dampened if that's all there is, and you get sick. She had that heart surgery as a as a as a younger person. She's watched friends of hers um, die, um, and so her her movement forward is to share these practices in the struggle for social justice. So tonight we're going to. Uh, explore another of the heart attitudes, mudita, um, appreciative joy or sympathetic joy are two translations for mudita. In 1950, uh, Albert Einstein wrote, wrote the following to a rabbi friend of his who had just lost his son to polio. And Einstein said this, a human being is part of the whole world, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish the delusion, but to try to overcome it is the way to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. So, as we've been saying, in addition to the cultivation of the, really, the powers of the heart, all the Brahma-Vihara energies, all the practices in their own way work to bridge this delusional separation that we feel from one another, from nature, etc. You know. And what I found interesting over the years, all the Buddhist practices, and there's like over 40 different meditations that the Buddha taught, all kinds, but they all, in their own way, tr- attempt at poking holes in your sense of being a solid, separate, embattled self. That's what they do. The emphasis on paying attention to the impermanent nature of nature. All of creation kind of coming and going. How many emotions have we had today? How many thoughts have we had today? How many physical sensations have we had today? You know, what is this separate, solid self that we think is there? You know, when you took a bite of food this evening, did you stop for a moment and consider how that got there and all the connecting web that brought it to you? It's absolutely, you know, one little piece of lettuce or a, or a, a, a carrot or a pea. All the individuals that connected with that, those that made the roads, that made the cartons that, that moved it, uh, those that took care of those people that did those things, that designed the trucks, that um, 
tilled the land, you know. And then further back, you can just trace it back and back. Okay, the sunlight, the rain, the biosystem, the Big Bang, you know, it's all stardust. So there's any, these separations that we feel sometimes, they really are, as Einstein said, delusion. And so these Brahma Vihar practices, yeah, they, they do cultivate these beautiful flavors of love. And it, with each of them, we're slowly eroding that sense of a separate self. It, it's, it's a beautiful kind of conjoining of the benefits of practice. And and like compassion, uh, mudita is an extension of friendliness. You know, that's kind of the the seedbed for compassion and appreciative joy. And uh, as Shell explained last night, that, that the heart of loving friendliness, when that energy meets the suffering of the world, it's transformed or it's morphed into compassion. When that friendliness meets suffering, it morphs into compassion, quivering in response to suffering. And when the heart that is connected, open, receptive, loving, and wise meets the good fortune of another or the success of another, that loving energy is transformed into mudita. Mudita at times might not be so easy. I mean, this cultivating of the simple wish that another happiness continues and that that happiness increases and that that happiness does not diminish. But it, when it's when it's activated, it really connects you in a lovely way. You know, it bridges that, helps bridge that separation. Now, in, in, although it's, it's coming on, the Brahma Viharas are, are now being incorporated more and more into mindfulness practice. And I've been involved with this kind of coming to the West for the last 40 years or so. And in the beginning, they really were kind of riding in the back seat. And now it's more front and center. There's historical hints of why that was. Basically, most of the, um, uh, the, the people who got the most airtime were male monks coming forward. So the softer heart energies kind of got put off to the side. But what scholars have uncovered and believe, that the original intention and teachings, they were equal to any of the emptiness practices or any of the other Vipassana practices. But even today, uh, it seems like uh, loving friendliness and compassion get the majority of attention and practice, whereas appreciative joy and equanimity are still kind of a little bit in the backseat to those two. So they're all, you know, bringing them all together here. Um, 
And if you and if you're one of the folks that really hasn't gotten around to exploring uh, mudita or upeka equanimity, um, I can pretty much guarantee you'll 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 be surprised in some really positive ways if you if you turn your attention in that direction. So, you know, it, meditation practice um, is endlessly interesting. Um, that all these subtly different channels of practice, we're really talking about love all these days, but there's these subtle differences in each of these. And it's like a multifaceted gem, this, this Buddhist practice. You can look at any of the facets, the beautiful cut facets, and they reflect all the other ones. You know, you can, you can start um, uh, anywhere. You can explore uh, the Four Noble Truths. And pretty soon you find yourself exploring loving friendliness and compassion. Or you can go in the doorway of impermanence, really kind of auguring down into that. And you find yourself in the kind of the, the, the thread and flavor of compassion in emptiness in the full emptiness of experience. So, so the slightest nuance of your practice, just a slight change of emphasis uh, or where you place your attention or a slight shift in your attitude can be momentous. And some of you have expressed that. Just a little movement. We never know when that's going to happen. So it subtle is significant. Subtle is significant in this practice. Now, at its foundation, Mudita recognizes that your happiness grows with the happiness of others. And from an egocentric position or outlook, that might sound counterintuitive. How come my happiness, you know, the, the guy down the block wins the lottery. How does that, you know, where do I fit into that? <laughs> well, we might have all kinds of reactions to that, you know. But in training in mudita, we can find the joy in that individual. And we can kind of hook our wagon to it, so to speak. Um, so it also Mudita also teaches an important truth you know and that truth is that um, there is not a scarcity available to your happiness there's plenty of happiness to go around if you can connect with it but when it's just about your happiness, well, your chances are a little more limited because you're one in eight billion or whatever the number is. Now. So let's do a little reflection together. So close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths, settle into this alive body. And I want you to 
bring to mind a time when you had some success or a success. Something really went your way. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing, but something that was important to you. See if you can conjure that up. Really kind of feel into the situation, what was happening. See the scene. See if you can feel what you're feeling when you when you discovered the success or the accomplishment. How did you feel? Really kind of fall into that event if you're able. And now bring to mind anyone in your relational field at that time who rejoiced with you, authentically rejoiced. And remember how good that felt, that kind of shared experience. Okay. Now, in, in opposition to that, it's a very different feeling when somebody's response to your success or happiness is possibly a kind of judging or they put some kind of qualification on it, or maybe in hearing the news, they quickly change the subject. So go back in. And think of, if possible, a time when you've had success. And maybe it's the same event with different, with different reactions from different people. And this time, an event where an individual dampened your happiness, your joy in some way. ignored you in a, in, in a way when you, when you told them or they had some kind of a judgment or qualification. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe you were able to touch him, maybe you weren't, but there's certainly a qualitative difference in the relational field when we're met by an authentic sharing of our happiness and when we're met in a situation where the person, other person is just unable to do that. I know for myself, if, if I'm sometimes a little sensitive to who and, and, and the conditions of when I'll, I'll share with another my happiness or uh, some success. You know? And I know it's not my responsibility to protect others uh, from their own stuff when I'm sharing something that might be important to me, some success, whatever. 
Um, and when I'm around somebody who has a kind of well-developed appreciative joy or mudita, it's so much easier and freer to share with that person because you, you know pretty much the, the response you're going to get, and it feels really good. You know, That person's in your corner, and you can feel it. It's a relational support. But around others that you're not quite sure, or I'm not quite sure, I'm a little more reticent. You know, I, I don't, again, it's not my responsibility, but I don't want to engender comparing mind or envy. So I just kind of careful. But my, my close-in folks that are my pals and that I know love me, well, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a win-win situation. Everyone's enjoying it. You know, and it's, it's kind of sad, but it's a well-known fact. And maybe some of you folks in this room were that really bright child. But in order to fit in with your peers, you know, you, you dampened down your success or your joy of creativity. You dampened down that, the feeling of empowerment. You know, and you you traded that for acceptance in your group. I totally get it, you know. But it's kind of sad. You know. Now, in practicing mudita, we don't use our own success as the launching pad. We find and, and touch into the success and happiness of another. So we're moving externally and connecting. I mean, just as a general statement, there's a lot of happiness in meditation practice. There really is. You know, it's an overflowing buffet of joy and happiness. And, of course, parts of it are hard and challenging. Um, and if you didn't know this, you wouldn't come to these retreats. You know, you got it intuitively that there's that there's joy, there's opening, there's healing here. And in practice, you're teaching yourself to relax a little bit, you know, to, um, uh, to fall into some quiet, some stillness. You actually start to enjoy relinquishing all the busyness of life, you know, that's why it's called a retreat. There's a rejuvenating quality to it all. Right? And when we get quiet and still for a little while or a longer while, we get to experience the joy of samadhi, the coming together of those mental factors of the mind. And there's a whole bunch of them. And as we've talked about in some of the groups, samadhi is not just concentration. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a thief is very well concentrated. A pickpocket, they're very concentrated, but they're not experiencing samadhi. Now, a gathering of attention and good concentration is one of the aspects, but there's like 30 different aspects. And I was once on a retreat. It was a long retreat, and we were like going through all this stuff, and we were pulling the threads on all these characteristics of samadhi as we move deeper and deeper into them. 
Well, there's, there's an increased mindfulness. There's greater tranquility. There's, there come up wholesome desires to do good. I mean, that's even part of samadhi. There's a healthy non-attachment. There's no semblance of any aggression whatsoever. You could not harm anybody when you're resting in samadhi. It would be inconceivable. Like in The Princess Bride. Inconceivable. And there's this generosity. And the mind is flexible and and wielded. It's a beautiful basket. And some of you have had that experience in your meditation practice. It's like, whoa, just lovely. Okay? And in cultivating mudita or any of the Brahma Viharas, there is joy in these practices, in that connection, in that kind of um, eroding of that separation. So the delight in, in taking part in someone else's joy and success, you're really riding on the context of relationship with that person. It's a very kind of intimate experience. And, and also it's true, when you're showing, you know, when you're, when you're moving into the field of the, the success and happiness of another, you're really showing care for them. And they feel that. You know, you're bonded to them in this friendship and love in those moments when you're sharing that. You know, all these practices move us outside of our small self, you know, to become a little more fluid, a little more porous, a little more connected. And as you as you probably noticed it noticed while you're here, it as hot as it is, it's still really beautiful. And nature is a fabulous platform for experiencing mudita. You know. Watching a bird make a nest, you know. Oh, you know. Or a butterfly flitting around, kind of picking up nectar here and there. And those of us who got to see that mother deer followed by her fawns, you know, still speckled. They weren't born that long ago, those, you know. Or a flower opening. And if you're really still and settled, when it rains, you can almost feel and hear the plants go, ah. So there is an opportunity when we can perceive that to kind of feel into it and take part in that. We're outside ourselves. We're connected and we're, there's this appreciative joy. I mean, you can even find it in nature and really unusual beings. Um, take stink bugs for an example. Now, this area of the country was inundated with stink bugs. And um, stink bugs, and, and I studied them a little bit because all of a sudden they were living with me in great numbers inside my house and everywhere. So I want to know, who are these people, you know, or whatever they are. Um, Maybe they were people and they were reborn to be stink bugs. But stink bugs 
are thigmotactic. Now, that's a word I didn't even know. Thigmotactic means that they really like contact. They like to touch. They like to get in close. And so you'll often see them all piled together, you know? They're like, that's their joy. That's their life. And they'll be in your windowsills and they'll be all around. They j- and in your bed. They just want contact. You know? So that's that kind of an advanced mudita practice where you can feel into the joy of a stink bug. You know? Personally, I so love merging into the ocean. Those of you who studied with me before know that I'm always finding ways to talk about the ocean. And I don't know why that is, but you all probably have that experience too. Certain experiences and things just kind of draw you in and touch you in a way. It's mysterious. You know, everybody's a little different, different things. But my affinity for the ocean and being really immersed in it, is that for me. Um, it's extraordinary. And the older I get, the more pronounced that that seems to be. Kind of floating around under and in that it's just so full of life. you know, And it makes me weightless. It's just absolutely delectable. I mean, maybe I was a fish in a former life or something or Maybe I'm headed that way in my next life. I don't know. It's like this, I feel it like this big womb I'm, I'm kind of going back to. And really, if you think about the origin of life on this planet, well, that's what it was. That's the origin of, of, of life and the sustainer of life. You've got to be careful with Mama Ocean, you know, take care of her. All part, very important part of the chain, and it's a water planet. Seventy-five percent of what's here is water. You know, so my last scuba trip, which was pretty recently, um, I really got into diving at the end of the day, just before it got dark. There's a lot of activity under there in the fish world. Some are trying to get their last meal of the day. Others are kind of starting to look for a place to hide out at night. And for others, it's sexy time, you know? And so watching the fish, learning to see that activity, I found they were having so much joy and pleasure in it and just feeling into it. It was like, you know, mudita to the max. They'd swim together and spin in up the water column, and then they'd spin out, and they'd be keeping an eye on each other, and then they'd spin in again. It was beautiful. And and this time I got to see uh, flounder mating. Mostly when you see flounder, they're just on the sand. You know, they're very cool, amazing creatures. You know, they start out in life, and their eyes are like ours, and on both sides of their head. And then they develop, and they kind of all go on one side, and they flatten out. And that's who they are, and they just stay on the bottom. But when it's sexy time, you'll see them kind of chasing each other around, and then they go up in the water column, which is very rare to see flounder do that. And they all twine together, and they do this thing, and it's like, oh, my gosh. You know? Simply enjoying 
the kind of life energy and joy of our fellow creatures is really a way to kind of connect and extend our own happiness. And I'll stop talking about fish. Just one more thing. They're really, they're, they are sentient beings, and they have a very complex, rich life and, re, and relationships. And there's a really cool book, if you're at all interested and wonder what's under the ocean and how they're operating. It's called What Do Fish Know? What Do Fish Know? It's, it's fascinating. Anyway, um, similarly to working with uh, love and kindness and compassion practices, we can use simple phrases to kind of help us prime the pump, visualizing an individual, extending that, that connective care, touching into their happiness and success. May your success and good fortune continue. You know, may your success and good fortune increase. May your success and good fortune good fortune never diminish. It's pretty simple. Or you can come up, of course, with your own phrases or the simple, simple phrase of joy. You know, you're watching the fawns and the mother or you're seeing something or a friend is experiencing some happiness, just the little reminder, joy, joy, kind of will help bring us out a little farther and connect a little better. And mudita is not um, needy or graspy. You know, it, that's not it at all. You know, it's very open-handed. Again, like the other Brahma Viharas, it's uh, it's a light, energetic. You know, it's expansive, and it doesn't turn back on itself and fall into a narrow self-interest. You know, it really does. I mean, that incessant drumbeat of survival. You know, those survival juices and from our ancestors, they're still there in our brainstem, you know. That that relentless drumbeat of it's it's me, me, me. It's all about me, me, me. Um, it narrows everything down to, well, our success, our happiness. It's a very limited band to kind of play in. Mudita says, well, let's push those riverbanks back about what's possible for happiness. You know, you're, you're, you're creating those neural pathways for joy by exploring the possibility of connecting to someone else's happiness or success. You know, I mean, hooking your wagon to all the joy and happiness that's out there, all those possibilities, it's just way better than that narrow, tiny path of me. Now, as with all the Brahma-Viharas, uh, we pay attention to the near enemy. And the near enemy of appreciative joy or sympathetic joy is a kind of kind of overexcited, giddy 
acceleration or exhilaration. You are accelerating. And, and, and in that, you kind of lose connection. And you kind of fall into your own little bubble of exuberance. It's not, it's not connected, and it can deflate quickly, etc. And and I was thinking of examples of that, and I didn't have to go back very far. This spring, I was in a retreat in uh, in Mexico. I wasn't teaching; it was a Sufi retreat. My wife's a Sufi teacher, and so there were. Um, Americans and Mexicans and people from South America, some of the, 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 and Sufis are great in terms of the heart. I mean, that's, that's what they lead with all their practices. And it's interesting about contemplative practices. They all have their strengths and weaknesses. That's a whole nother discussion. But Sufi practice is just like, it's all about the heart. Rumi's their guy you know, and these other mystical poets. And so, and they have these, these dances. And so the last night of the retreat, everybody's pretty up. And some, a couple of people got together and they went and they hired a marimba band as a surprise. So everybody's sitting around having dinner. And all of a sudden, these people in these magnificent costumes, I mean, it, it was just spectacular great musicians, they come parading out on the beach. Everybody gets up, starts dancing. And it was a, it was a really a mixed crowd. There were a lot of old folks and, and they're up there gyrating and carrying on and there were young people and it was just crazy. And the, and the musicians um, were laughing. Now, I don't know if they were <laughs> <laughs> laughing with us or at us, you know, Look at these crazy gringos, you know, just acting up. But there was a lot of good energy, and so we're, we're dancing. And and at first, I was totally connected and seeing all the joy. And this group of people who I'd gotten to know, many of them, and over the years, I knew their struggles. I knew how they were suffering. And these were moments where they were just feeling it. They were happy. All that stuff had dropped away for some moments. I was feeling into it. Now, it was a little weird, the whole thing, a little like a Fellini film in, in some ways. Um, and then all of a sudden I got hysterical, and I just doubled over laughing, and all the connection was lost. I was in my little whatever, my self-entertainment bubble or something, and it was the near enemy to Mudita. And so you know, afterwards, my wife, you know, said to me, you know, she said, well, what, where did you go? You know, what, you know, what happened? And I said, well, I, I really don't know. I, I, you know, I just, all of a sudden, all the fuses got blown and I just kind of got lost, you know? I, I really wasn't connected to anything. So that's kind of the, the near enemy, okay? Besides being as pleasant as mudita is when we're able to contact it, it has a very real capacity to heal a whole lot of uh, um, conditions that um, really depress your heart, your body, and your mind. There's some real kind of rubber meets the road, good stuff in Mudita. And it helps us with that 
endless comparing that we do. It helps us with judging any prejudices we might have, envy, jealousy, some big ones, envy and jealousy, even with boredom. In Buddhism, the word conceit doesn't mean what doesn't mean what it means generally. Con- conceit in Buddhism means the comparing mind, where you size up a situation or a person. Um, am I better than, the same as, or less than? You know, it's um, and <laughs> the Buddha said on a number of occasions. Conceit is the last thing to dissolve before full enlightenment. That we're always comparing, you know, and um, it relates to survival. That's why it's happening. Again, it's in the brainstem. You know, we think back to our way back ancestors in their hunter gatherer group, whatever it is, a small band of people moving around, supporting one another. There was probably a pecking order. And you never wanted to be on the end of that pecking order, you know, because if there was ever something in um, um, you know you were chosen as expendable or sorry, Pat, but you know we don't have enough resources, and you're more of a bother than you're worse than you're worth, well, then you'd probably end up being lunch to something out there. So that's in our brainstem. So we're always sizing things up for survival. And we compare everything. You know, you're comparing how do you rank in your social group? How do you rank in your various competencies? How smart are you? You know, how strong are you? How do you rank in terms of the culturally, culturally accepted beautifulness, whatever that is? You know, how about wealth? And even in spirituality, you know, oh, that person, they're more compassionate than I am, or I'm more compassionate than they are. You know, it's like it never gives it up. You know, am I more generous, less generous, or about the same as that person? You know, so so if you can find ways, and this mudita practice is one of the ways to just dampen even a little bit the comparing mind, it's really going to open up a lot more light and freedom. Where the social networks that we find ourselves in can be really at least at times, and this may sound like, hy- like hyperbole, um, more like a delightful playground than something that we're trying to eke out our survival. And the comparing mind can be, it can be reduced. Our basic mindfulness does that. You know, knowing when comparing mind is happening, when it's happening. Oh, oh yeah, there it is. I recognize that. Oh, gosh, that's the comparing mind again. You know? So you pause. And in that pause, you explore the whole constellation of what comparing mind brings. What does that feel like in the body? 
when we're comparing ourselves? You know, what kind of emotions are there? What's the thought stream? You know? You know, and what mindfulness allows us to do is to feel all that, allow it, bring some tenderness to ourselves, because we're there's there can be some real suffering in that, you know, when we're stuck in that comparing. And we can kind of gently say to our ancestor, oh, thank you very much for gifting me with this comparing mind for my survival. But, you know, I think I'm going to damp it down a little bit right now. I appreciate it all, but it's a bit much. I'm going to put my attention somewhere else. So, so you're at that choice point, you know. And, and any time we recognize something in practice, immediately the relationship has changed. Doesn't mean that all of a sudden it gets pleasant, but it's a different relationship. There, there's immediately, when we've been identified and lost in something, we recognize, oh, this is fear, or this is grief or sadness. There's a healthy detachment, a little bit of spaciousness around it. And we're then able to be with it in a more skillful manner. Of course, when we're lost, we're lost. That's just the nature of being identified and tumbled around. But the more we practice, our mindfulness kind of pushes our head to the surface a little bit quicker. Oh, this is what's going on. I'm just lost in comparing mind or something else, you know. I remember it was like 20-plus years ago, back in the 90s. Joseph Goldstein asked me to teach a retreat with him at IMS. He wanted to do a men's retreat. So I said, no, come on, Pat, teach this retreat for me. And I was just kind of just starting out teaching retreats. Talk about comparing mind. <laughs> I mean, it was a wildfire in my mind and my body at that retreat. And leading up to the retreat, how could I give a talk after him? You know, that was absurd. You know, I had nothing. I was nobody, you know, blah, 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 the comparing mind. I mean, I was being devoured by it. You know, as we went through the process of teaching it, you know, all the you know, I got to see and feel the components of everything that was happening. It wasn't very pleasant. But at some point during the week, it kind of changed. I was able to have a kind of appreciative joy for the happiness that this man was showing as he was doing something so skillful. He was so successful at it, so on point. And I also, that during that week, developed a little greater, greater compassion for, for the pain of suffering in myself and what that's like for other people when they're comparing like that and lost in it. You know? And I had a little, some equanimity about the whole process that I'd gone through. Well, it's like this. This is the, you know, the the bitter fruit of comparing mind when it runs amok and fully grabs you, 
So Mudita asks you, as you go through your day, to let every measure of happiness you find be something that you rejoice in. You know, being awake to those possibilities. And Mudita even helps with boredom. You know? Boredom has a, an aversive quality to it. And so when you notice that you're bored, and that'll happen on retreats, you might also notice there's some aversion to your experience. And one way to work with that is you can hunt happiness and joy outside yourself for a little while and see how that lands. Hunting rabbits, kind of. But you're hunting happiness. If you can break out, the, the, the field of happiness is infinite. If you can break out of that kind of myopic little ego ball that tightens down, you know. Here's a little side note. All the energies of aversion, anger, fear, guilt, shame, impatience, boredom, um, they all thrive on you not seeing them. They're just digging in deeper and deeper until you wake to, oh, what's that? clawing at me. Oh, that's guilt, shame, fear, whatever. And then we turn our practice toward it, bring TLC into the, into the equation, and we can work with it. Mudita also has a, has a, a modifying effect on stinginess. The Buddha often referred to miserliness. Or hoarding, you know, those energies are, um, in general, any of those energies around scarcity, feeling scarcity. And I grew up in a household where it was all scarcity. You know, that's that was the air we were breathing. You know, it's years of working through that. I still am. You know, but those those energies, stinginess, miserliness, scarcity. Uh, they can be kind of aggressive, you know, and they ratchet down any kind of available joy that might be somewhere in the field when you're feeling those energies. They are the opposite of generosity. There's no joy there. You know, they're so tight. You know, the word tightwad, you know, it's just a tight little bundle. Not letting anything out. Protective little bundle. So mudita has a kind of sharing quality to it. Because you're in this union with another person of joy. Sharing it. You can feel them sharing yours. You can feel, you know, you can share theirs. And what happens is, the more you touch into mudita here and there, that inclining the mind, um, you know, towards that sharing, you want to share more. You want to share everything. You know? So it, it's a mudita supports, as do the other Brahma Ruhars, this really beautiful other-directed 
sensibility. Now, the far enemies, easy to identify when they're up, and they're powerful. Envy and jealousy. Yikes, you know. You all know the weighty content content of those. They're toxic. With envy, we want something that another person has. And it has that comparing essence to it also, that kind of undercurrent. But we want something that another person has. Jealousy, it has a similar, similarly high to- toxicity. You know, uh, Shakespeare, that one of the great Dharma teachers of the 16th century, um, he understood jealousy. It's shot through a lot of his work. And uh, in Othello, uh, the rejected um, Iago, he's plotting revenge against Othello by trying to plant seeds of jealousy and mistrust toward in Othello toward his wife, Desdemona. And, and he says, he kind of foreshadows to Othello, he, it's kind of like he warns him, even though he's, he's doing this, setting up this sinister situation. He says this to Othello, Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Which doth mock the meat it feeds on. What an image. Yuck. The green-eyed monster of jealousy. Green with envy comes from Othello. You know? Jealousy is really, it, it's a little bit complicated. It jams your system in a way that just, um, when you're jealous, you've got the contradictory emotions both on fire. You've got hatred and you've got desire. And the mind gets like seized completely. It's, and then there's a twisted logic to everything. You know, with jealousy, uh, you're wanting, you know, so you got the wanting mind and then you got the hating mind together. That's why it's so horrible when you feel it, Ugh. you know. So, you, you, you know, you, you're, you're there desperately wanting what you don't have while hating the one who has it. You know? And there's all manner of reverberation from jealousy. I mean, it tears us up mentally and physically when we're stuck there. So practicing mudita, um, I'd say ahead of time as a prophylactic, will will dim the power of envy and jealousy. But when envy and jealousy are up and full bore, well, then we're faced with, you know, bringing our attention to it, first recognizing it, bringing a, recognizing how we're suffering, how horrible this is, you know, and bring some, bringing some TLC to ourselves, you know, and slowly working our way, working our way through it and helping it run its course and then maybe simply putting our mind on something that's happy, some happiness. Mm.
Because any happiness is a preamble to mudita. It's all about conditioning these neural pathways. Maybe the, you know, when you come across it, maybe the most powerful um, experience of moving into a relational field with another who's experiencing happiness is when this other is actually performing a generous act, something really wholesome and virtuous. And you know they're feeling good in their connection. And then you can feel, you know, happiness as you enter into it. And that's really powerful you know, when that happens. So the essence of this mudita practice and summing it up is really pretty simple. Learning and practicing, inclining your heart and mind to the joy and success of others. And that brings a kind of light radiance to everyday living. It does. It can, those moments when we're able to do that. It brings greater joy in our relationships. You know, when we're when it's when it's maybe happening naturally and we're feeling it, oh, this is mudita. Let me just really kind of, you know, kind of relax into it. You know? And then there's that deeper connection to all creation. It counters and softens all manner of aversion. And if that happens, even in to some small degrees, it's worth the price of admission. So I want to end with a little poem by Galway Cannell. It's been one of my favorites for decades. I'm sure you've all heard it. It's called St. Francis and the Sow. The Bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing, as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. So, thank you. Let's just sit for just a moment together.
And may our connection with the happiness and success of others, may that be felt deeply, may it increase, and may it never diminish. <laughs>